So I thought about what area we could talk about tonight that was of need to all of us. Uh, I have to fulfill my promises to you that we're going to talk about the structure of the Trinity Mass a little bit and the spirituality a little bit. Um, but I also thought, well, we dropped off with the history of the Mass basically as we were heading up into the modern age, and I just pretended as though that didn't exist last time. So I thought it important to talk a little bit also about that. What happened prior to Vatican II? What happened at Vatican II? What happened after Vatican II? And uh, where we stand today? Now that's a lot, but uh, I hope that we can get through some of that. Uh, how many of you are very, would say, are very familiar with the Trinity Mass? Okay, good. How many of you say you were somewhat familiar with the Trinity Mass? Like if you attended it, you'd be able to pretty much go along with it pretty good. How many of you would say, I don't have a clue? All right, good. Well, at least some people could get something out of it tonight. Are you talking about what we used to call the Mass, High Mass? Yeah, well, the Old Mass prior, prior to the reforms after Vatican II. So, yes, what you remember from your childhood. Or if you're young, what you remember from the Slow Mass. Slow Mass. Hold on. Slow down. Slow down. I'm talking about the Trinity Mass. I'm simply talking about the Mass as it was prior to the reforms of 1970, Low Mass or High Mass. Most of you are familiar with Low Mass, unfortunately, as the norm. Um, but um, I'm talking about the Missal as it stood, as it is in my hand right now, with all the prayers that it has and all of those things. I'm not talking about the way of celebration, whether it's low or high, whether you have incense or you sing it. It's still the same Mass in the Missal, okay? All right. I have a question. Yes. How about the mass saved from 1930? We're going to talk about that. Is that the true time mass? Yes. Yes. I concluded last time, or well, I started the question and answer session, which really was the question and answer session last time, with this quote from Father Fortescue, writing in the early 1900s. Our missile is still that of Pius V. Pius V was the Pope following the Council of Trent. We may be very thankful for his commission, was, that his commission was so scrupulous to keep or restore the old Roman tradition. Essentially, the Missal of Pius V is the Gregorian sacramentary that again is formed from the Gelasian book, which depends on the Leonine collection, went all the way back to the fourth century then. We find the prayers of our canon in the treatise De Sacramentis and allusions to it in the fourth century. So our mass goes back with it without essential change to the age when it first developed out of the oldest liturgy of all. It is still redolent of that liturgy, of the days when Caesar ruled the world and thought he could stamp out the faith of Christ, when our fathers met together before dawn and sang a hymn to Christ as to a God. The final result of our inquiry is that, in spite of unsolved problems, in spite of later changes, there is not in Christendom another rite so venerable as ours. Okay, speaking of that Trinity Mass, the traditional Mass, before the reform of after Vatican II. I say after Vatican II because it's a misunderstanding to say that, that the missile which came about after Vatican II was the product of Vatican II. It really wasn't. Okay? Is there anything magical about the 200 year deal? What 200 year deal? Well, like, you know, anything 200 years. Yes! What is magical about yeah, these points? The Pius V's declaration, quote, pre Right, after Trent, where he says, you are to use this missile which I am promulgating, the missile right here, exactly reprinted. I have the old version right here in the old lettering and everything. 1570. So you have to use this missile of your priest, except 
if the if the right which you use in, as a local custom where you live is 200 years old or older. It's extremely important because Pius V was simply promulgating the missile as it was in Rome at that time, which was a missile with which back, went back 200 years. And he was saying, if there's been any innovation since then, and what happened in those 200 years, all sorts of heresies started to creep up with humanism. And ultimately, uh, Luther came about. And remember I talked about how Luther started tinkering with the liturgy and the other Protestant revolutionaries started tinkering with the liturgy a little bit. And that's why Pius V was saying, it's got to go back 200 years so we're absolutely sure that the liturgy which you have is not tainted by Protestantism. Okay? Pius V had a great respect for tradition. He was not inventing something new. Okay, does that answer your question, Lewis? Yeah. All right. It is said that the missile, as it was prior to Vatican II, prior to the reforms after Vatican II, has a great sense of sacrifice in it. And in fact, the word sacrifice appears all over the place in it. It has a great sense of the humility um, of the penitent. It has a great sense of the sinfulness of man and his standing before the awesome God. Okay. Many people have pointed out these types of things as the reason why the Missal of Pius V, or the traditional Missal, is what they would call superior to the new Mass as we know it today. Whether you agree with that or not, I'm just pointing out to you that that is an argument that is made. Okay, That, that Missal, as it was formed over 2,000 years of tradition, was so Catholic to the word that everything in it spoke of being Catholic. Everything that you could not attend that Mass and grow up with that Mass and not be a Catholic. You couldn't end up praying that Mass and end up in heresy because you misunderstood or things were ambiguous. There was nothing of ambiguity in it, or so the argument goes. Okay. It is a missile which was received from the, from the development of 2,000 years of popes, of saints, of theologians. Okay, And so, a few things about it that I thought were important to look at. A little bit different. To give you guys a sense of what's going on today versus what was going on back then when you attended Mass. One of the first things that happens, what's the first thing that happens when you attend the traditional Mass and the priest walks up to the foot of the altar? What prayers are said? Now, before the confidior, the prayers at the foot of the altar. Now, before the introit. The introit is a particular prayer. Now, that's right. Intro ibo ad alatari dei, adem quilativicat juventuta mem. I will go up to the altar of my God, the God who gives joy to my youth. Okay? The prayers at the foot of the altar were one of those things that was gotten rid of. Okay? It was Psalm, Psalm 42, that was repeated, that was said. A very beautiful psalm that was used in preparation for the sacrifice of the Mass. Originally, the prayer, the, 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 the psalm was used as a private prayer of the priest in the sacristy. Over time, it started to be said on the way to the altar. You can imagine, right? The priest is running late. He throws on his vestments. He starts saying his preparatory prayers as he's walking up to the altar. 
Okay? Pius V mandated that it be set at the foot of the altar, most likely because he wanted everybody to see that indeed this was a Catholic Mass and it hadn't been tinkered with. So from beginning to end, this is what is to be said. And this is where it's to be said, out in public where everybody can see. Okay? The guy standing before you is not a Protestant. He's a Catholic priest, in other words. Okay. Yes. Sorry. That's okay. So no, no hymn on the way in. Oh, a hymn, sure. A hymn could be could be said on the way. Could be chanted on the way in. Absolutely. But when the priest got to the foot of the altar, he had certain private prayers he had to do. Okay. okay? They're said in a low tone for that very reason. They're his private prayers. Okay. Um, I will go up to the altar of God, the God, the God of my gladness and joy. Do me justice, O God, and fight my fight against a faithless people. From the deceitful and impious men, rescue me. For you, O God, are my strength. Why do you keep me so far away? Why must I go about in mourning with the enemy oppressing me? To this sense of man exiled from God, it was a psalm written by King David as he was exiled by King Saul. And so there's a sense of exile, of separation from God, and a desire to go to Him. Okay? After these prayers are said, we're going to have a chance next week to look at this. I'm going to actually copy off the, the, the main parts of the old Mass for you, and we're going to look through it and give, sense, uh, give, give you a sense of turning back and forth in your missile so you know how to do it. Okay? After these prayers are finished, the confidior is said. Okay? How does the confidior go? Well, no, in English. And? So you, my brothers and sisters, in the old mass, it didn't say that. Okay? I confess to Almighty God, to the Blessed Mary ever-Virgin. Okay, let me read it so everybody can hear. Blessed Michael the Archangel, Blessed John the Baptist, to the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to all the saints, and to you, Father... To the priest, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed. Okay, so a little bit of a much longer form. Uh, the Dominican rite. The Dominicans had a version of this missal that they used, and their their rite was 200 years older, and so they kept it. Okay, same with the Franciscans. The Dominicans have in there in that list Saint Dominic, of course. Okay. Um, after the confidior said, the priest gives an absolution absolving the people of venial sin, so that as they approach the sacrifice of the Mass, they do so with a pure heart. Okay? So there's another difference. Excuse me? Uh, yes. Last week you said that the actually Mass uh, gave away those petitions to the Virgin Mary and the angels and St. Peter and St. Paul. Why? Why are they in there? Uh, why they change? That's a huge question that maybe we can talk about a little bit later. But and that's a good question of the whole point. Why did the reform take place? Because it was hijacked. Well hold on, Norma. We're all gonna stay one mind here. Alright. The priest then ascends the steps of the altar. In the old days, the altar was up against the wall. Okay? And there were steps that led up to it. Okay, even so today, there's steps usually that go up to the altar, and the altar is elevated usually a little bit, hopefully. Okay, but there was, what are you laughing at, Jennifer? <laughs> anyway, so the priest ascends to the altar, and when he ascends to the altar, he kisses the altar. The altar is a, 
symbol of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the world. And in the middle of the altar, as you see them today, that's still true today. The priest goes up to the altar, he kisses it immediately, right? And in the altar, there's relics of the saints, okay? And certain prayers are said, followed by the Kyrie eleison. The Kyrie eleison in the old form is a little different. It wasn't just Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christi eleison, Christi eleison, right? Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, that thing. There was three. It's a little bit confusing. And when you attend the Mass, you might at first, until you get used to it, be a little confused. All right? How many of you know it well? All right. Kyrie eleison. Kyrie eleison. Kyrie eleison. You see, you went back to Kyrie, but you're supposed to go to Christi. So it's three. It gets confusing because there's instead of three, you switch back and forth. It's a little bit more intricate. One thing to be familiar to, to realize is that just as anything which is of antiquity, which is something which has been preserved over time, there's a reason why it's preserved, because it's something that is very beautiful, something sacred. Just as an art gallery that has beautiful works of art takes time to appreciate it, the modern American walking into a Catholic church where the Tridentine Mass, the old Mass being celebrated, oftentimes is completely lost, and they walk out frustrated because they don't realize they're standing before one of the greatest works of art that man has ever created. In fact, man didn't create it, something given by God himself. Okay, so that's something that's important. Always be patient. And if you get lost, you're confused, don't be angry at the Mass. Be angry at the fact that you were robbed of this beautiful thing as a child and you didn't grow up with it, if that's the case. Okay? And so always remember, you know, who's to be blamed here? Not, not the Mass. The Mass is innocent, the whole thing, okay? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the priest kisses the altar, okay? And again, asks for mercy. He turns and says the introit. Now, here's something that you got to know. As the priest is walking up to the altar, usually if there's a choir, the introit, or the, it's the beginning prayer, will be said. Okay? Usually taken from the Old Testament. An example for the Feast of the Holy Family. The father of the just will exult with glee. Let your father and mother have joy. Let her who bore you exult. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul yearns and pines for the courts of the Lord. Beautiful. Okay? A lot of times it'll be chanted in Latin along as the priest is making his way to the altar. He says those prayers, those preparatory prayers before the altar, while that's being chanted by the choir in Latin. A lot of people don't realize that. Okay? So anyways, the introit is said. Um, and I, well... After the introit, the Gloria. Okay, the Gloria, I said, came into the Roman church about, oh, the 900s, somewhere in there, okay? It's something borrowed from the Eastern churches, most likely. We have a very similar prayer in the Eastern churches, okay? After the Gloria, the priest kisses the altar again and turns and says, Dominus focus, the Lord be with you, okay? Why does he kiss the altar again? Whenever the priest offers the things of God to the people, he stays connected with God. So, oftentimes, he will lift his hand upon the altar to give the blessing for the people, connecting himself to Christ. Or he will kiss the altar, and then he will turn to offer the peace of the Lord to the people. Okay? So there's a lot of theology here that is going on by the very actions which are done. Okay? Um... 
the Dominus Vobiscum is followed by the prayer or collect. Okay? The prayer or collect um, and the introit are basically two prayers that are done at the beginning of the liturgy. In the new mass, there's only one that's done. Okay? Uh, the prayer is something in, not from scripture, but written by the church, received through tradition, and is a petition to the Lord. Okay? O Lord Jesus Christ, by subjecting yourself to Mary and Joseph, you consecrated family life with wonderful virtues. Grant that by their joint assistance we may fashion our lives after the example of your holy family and obtain everlasting fellowship with it. And so on. Okay. Is that, is that the prayer we're calling uh, from the Latin right uh, from the Tridentine uh, right? Yes. Okay. Is that the same as what happens now? No. Because uh, there are different prayers that all I find only one That's right. in the entire church here addressed to Jesus. Yeah, that might be. And I, that's why I was surprised. I don't know. Yeah. Who wrote those? Uh, yeah. Who wrote these? They're, they're prayers uh, handed on from tradition. Okay, now. When was the Feast of the Holy Family instituted? I don't, I can't tell you that. But whenever it was instituted, that's probably around the time that that was written. Usually a holy man living during the time is asked to construct the Mass for, uh, for that day. Okay, all the propers. For, exa for example, for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Who wrote the Mass? The propers. St. Thomas Aquinas did. Okay, he was alive at the time and was asked by the Pope to write these prayers. Okay? Uh, the Epistle is read. Now, in the in the new um, in the new rite uh, or the new missal, the missal of Paul the sixth, um, there's a cycle of three years, right? Right. A, year A B C. Not in the old days. Only one liturgical year. Okay. Only one set of readings, and therefore there's a lot less readings actually used in the old mass. In the new mass, it's one of the things that, that some people have said are, is wonderful about the new mass is that. A lot more of the scriptures are opened up for the faithful. And there might be something to that. Although, again, the readings were chosen here through history. It's not something that was chosen overnight. Okay? And so they're very uh, fitting to the feast at hand. But this holiness is um, said recently that he is uh, asking to the congregation of the sacred rites to see whether the can be enriched with more readings. Um, no, he said, he said more prefaces. Yeah, not readings. Okay. He did give the allowance that the readings could be done in the English. In the old days, if you remember, the reading was done in Latin, the gospel was done in Latin, and then the priest went to the pulpit and read them in English and in Latin. Okay? Not necessary anymore. Okay? The, the reading and the gospel can simply be done in the vernacular. Okay, yes. Now, whether you're doing the Tridentine Mass or the one by Paul VI, uh, the liturgical years still match up, right? Like the first no. Sunday of Advent will still be the first Sunday of Advent? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, actually, okay. it does. Well, the, the overall, the overall yeah. schedule should yeah. fit for the most part, but this your, your saints days and things like that will not. Right. Okay, okay, so are you, but your question is, can I use the, liturg the yeah. calendar right. for the new rite to help me with the old rite? The answer is no, you can't. Oh, okay, you'd be totally confused because they're called different things, and it's really not. It's not of any use. Okay, you'd be totally confused. Yes, for the ordinary days, I thought they only said one gospel. 
Is that true? Yes. Okay, so there's just the one gospel, and then for holy days, they have different gospels. No, wait. No, no, I there's a new I don't know. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. Do they change the gospel reading on feast days? Or do they keep the same gospel reading all year round? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. The gospel reading is done for every day is different. Okay, sure, there's probably repetition in there of the gospel, but but uh, no, for every day it's different. I think he's asking about the three-year cycle. We don't have a three-year cycle. That's what he's asking. Is that what you're asking? No, 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 it's not what he's asking. He's talking about the portion from John that is repeated. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That's what he's asking. Maybe. All right. <laughs> Following the epistle. Following the epistle. There are the Alleluia verses, which are done slightly different than in the Novus Ordo Mass. Okay, but for the most part, the, the intent is the same. The responsorial psalm is not really done in the same manner as it's done today. Okay. Uh, followed, of course, by the gospel. Um, and... Um, and on Sundays and feast days, the creed. Okay? The offertory is something that has really been changed quite a bit. And I handed out to you a text there before you, which is a good example. If you don't have it, we got more in the back, I think. You'll notice that this is, um, this is if this works. Um, you'll notice on, in your missile or in, your, in the copy you got before you that you have Latin on one side English on the other right? a lot of people say well when I attended mass in the old days I didn't understand anything I just say well why didn't you get out your missile that you had before you because it's right there right? Um, and besides that a lot of the prayers for the most part are pretty straightforward you know uh, even in the Latin. So anyways, I thought this is a good example, and I have a commentary on it. An example of the sense of the beauty of the prayers of the traditional missal. Accept, O Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, this spotless host, which I, your unworthy servant, offer to you, my living and true God, to atone for my numberless sins, offenses, and negligences, on behalf of all here present, and likewise for all faithful Christians, living and dead, that they may profit me and them as a means of salvation to life everlasting. Amen. Father Pius Parch has this to say about, about that particular prayer in this part of the Mass. It's a little bit of a long quote, so just bear with me. Having recited the offertory verse, the priest unveils the chalice, take, takes the paten with the host of unleavened bread upon it, and raising it up to about the level of his eyes, offers it up to God in the prayer, Sushite Sante Pater. Receive, O Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, this spotless host, which I, thy worthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for my own countless sins, offenses, and negligences, and for all here present, as also for all faithful Christians, living or dead, that it may avail for my own salvation, my, for my own and for their salvation unto life everlasting. Amen. Translation might have been a little bit different. This prayer, the richest in content of any of, it, of this part of the Mass, contains a whole world of dogmatic truth. Who is it that offers the sacrifice? It is the priest as representative of Christ, quote, which I, thy unworthy servant, offer. To whom? To the Father of all, to the Father, all holy, God Almighty, quote, the living and true God. What 
does he offer this spotless victim? He offers the bread, but the expression hostia immaculata shows that the thoughts of the priest in this prayer do not rest there. This bread which he holds in his hands is, is as yet neither hostia, victim, nor properly speaking immaculata, immaculate. Yet already he has its destiny in mind. It is to become the Eucharist, the hostia immaculata, in very truth a consummation already anticipated in thought. And for whom is it offered? In atonement for innumerable sins, offenses, and negligences of the priest himself. These terms are, of course, synonymous. The liturgy frequently uses a cumulative expressions to deepen the impression upon our minds. It is offered, too, for all those present, standing around the altar of sacrifice, circumstantes, and beyond them, for all Christians living and dead, all will benefit by the sacrifice which has as its final purpose, quote, that it may profit for my own and for their salvation unto life everlasting. The final purpose of the Mass is, therefore, the same as that of the sacrifice of the cross, the salvation of all mankind. This prayer so rich in doctrine could serve as a basis for an entire treatise on the Mass. You can see, you understand the reason why many have pointed out that in this missal, with the beautiful prayers that it contains, a whole, as he says, a whole world of dogmatic truth is contained. Okay? It is perfect in its orthodoxy. It is not ambiguous in any area. When, the in when incense is used, a very beautiful prayer is offered. Through the intercession of blessed Michael the Archangel, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense, and of his elect, may the Lord vouchsafe to bless this incense, and the priest blesses, and to receive it as an odor of sweetness through Christ our Lord. Amen. May this incense blessed by you arise before you, O Lord, and may your mercy come down upon us. And then he says, Psalm 140. Let my prayer, O Lord, come like incense before you, the lifting up of my hands like an evening sacrifice. O Lord, set a watch before my mouth and guard at the door of my lips. Let not my heart incline to evil, to the evil of engaging the deeds of the wickedness. Yes, I smile at Edmund because in our parish, that exact prayer is used. Of course, it's a psalm. It fits perfectly with the offering of incense, and so naturally it's used. Okay? Similarly, the lavabo, or the washing of the hands. What is the prayer that's used today? There is, Lord, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Right. Lord, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Okay? Again, it's Psalm 25 that is used in the traditional missal. I will wash my hands in innocence, and I will go around your altar, O Lord, giving voice to my thanks and recounting all your wondrous deeds. And he goes on and on and on. It's beautiful. Okay? The priest? Yes, I observed the Mass, and the priest stands there, and he wipes his hands as he prays, and he does, I promise. What's that? No, no, no. Oh, what she's saying is that in, in the new rite, they skip it, some, her priest skips the washing of hands altogether. But I'm saying in the old liturgy, this prayer that's used is a very beautiful prayer. And most of these prayers are taken from the scriptures themselves. They're not made up out of whole cloth. Okay? So you'll see that there's very, it, almost the structure is, is very similar. The development of the liturgy goes along very similar. You've got your reading, you've got your gospel, you've got your reading, your washing of hands. But all the things that go with that, okay, or many of the things that go with that are different. 
Okay. There's another proper prayer called a secret. It's done in quiet at this point. Okay? Maybe some of you remember that. It's, called, it's simply called a secret because it was traditionally done silently by the priest. Okay? Followed by the preface and the sanctus. Okay? The canon, or the Eucharistic prayer, um, which we still have today in a certain format as uh, Eucharistic prayer number one. In the old days, there was just one Eucharistic prayer. Okay? There was no option to the priest. He said this one Eucharistic prayer. Okay? The blessings, certain things about the Eucharistic prayer were different. Many of his actions were different. There were a lot more amens. After each part of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest said amen. Okay? There were many more genuflections. So from a visual standpoint, the saying of the Eucharistic prayer actually looks quite different. Okay, some of you will remember in the old days the priest standing there doing this with his arm as he said the Eucharistic prayer. I read one book, he, his kid thought he was up there washing the dishes. He was a little kid because he kept seeing his vestments, arm going around and around. It's because he's making the blessing over and over and over again, okay? Um, the bread is blessed three times and then the wine is blessed three times, okay? The diptychs are said or the prayers for the Holy Father and the bishop of your diocese. It's simply that, the prayer, the prayer for the hierarchy. Okay, if you come to our liturgy, similarly during the Eucharistic prayer, we pray for the Pope, our patriarch, and our bishop. What does that word mean, diptych? I, I'm a Greek. I don't know. Actually, I think it's something, uh, yes. Oh, I just wanted to. Oh, I think you're going to give us the etymology that we're not. I just wanted to. I, hold on. I think it means I think it means a two-folded card or something like that. I was reading on this The triptych is threefold. Diptych is. I wanted to comment on the point at which the diptych. Yes. Yes. An interesting thing about when someone parts with tradition is makes a state church. Is that state heroes become um, church heroes? Right. For example. Nelson is buried in the middle of St. Paul's Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And an interesting facet of who is Nelson? An interesting facet of this premise is that in the Episcopal Church, yes. in the what would correspond to the diptych, I suppose, was, um, the president of the nation's name is mentioned. Mm, that is a good point. Huh. All right, there is a, there is an explicit, explicit reference for the living and for the dead, okay? Today in the church, uh, somebody usually goes up to the pulpit and reads the prayers to the faithful, right? Uh, in the old mass, during the Eucharistic prayer, there was a time of silence where each person in attendance prayed for the living that he was remembering during that liturgy. Okay, and after the Eucharist, after the consecration, the prayers for the dead are there. Okay, um, the consecration looks different. For the most part, it's the same. Okay, there is a double genuflection before and after the consecration of each of the species. Okay, um, and the elevation, which we're all familiar with, as the priest raises the host above his head. Brought into the Roman Church in the 11th century, quite late actually. Okay, before that, the elevation was not part of the liturgy. Um, there's there's uh, historical documents which which recall for us what was taking place in the, once they started to elevate the host. 
the people were very pious and wanted to look at Jesus. And so there's accounts of people in the church, they didn't quite have the sense, the modern sense of being quiet in church like we do. They would yell, higher, lift it higher, lift it higher. And so there are minor variations. 
okay? After communion, there's a communion and a post-communion prayer, okay? The people are dismissed, ite misa est, that's where we get the term mass from, okay? It is sent in Latin, it has been sent forth, um, and then the blessing is given. Most likely the blessing is given after we are dis uh, dismissed because it was a late addition, okay? It was not an early addition to the uh, early part of the mass that the priest would give the blessing at the end of the liturgy, okay? I have the date here somewhere. And then the last 10th century. Yes, you have good memory. After all that's done, there is a last gospel. And this Nobody is what we were talking about earlier that maybe you, you were referring to. They never changed, um, uh, except it wasn't said uh, on what day? No. I do, no, I do believe it was not said on Christmas Day because it was the gospel for the day. It's one day anyways, whether it's the gospel for the day, it's not said. But for the most part, when you attend it, it the, the last gospel is said. Okay? And there are certain prayers that follow the Mass with the priest as he descends from the altar in Thanksgiving and for the conversion of Russia. Okay? Brought in by Leo the Thirteenth. Okay? Three Hail Marys. What year was that? Ew. Leo the 13th. When did Leo the 13th bring? That's when he had the vision, and that's when he implemented That's interesting. Yes, it the is. of Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, that's that sounds. Now, what happened? We don't have a long time. I do, I do want to leave a lot of time for question and answer, but I do want to give you a sense of what took place. Okay? Already in the 18th century, there was a, a liturgical movement underway. Okay? Mostly in the monasteries. Mostly in the Benedictine monasteries. Okay? Certain great men came along that wrote beautiful things about the liturgy. Okay, one of them I have right here is part of a, like, I don't know, 20 or 30 volume set, which I have at home. Dom Prosper Garanger, okay, who was a monk of Salem, was abbot of Salem at a certain point. Salem was a famous uh, monastery known for liturgy and known for sacred chant. At that point in history, the Roman chant, as we might hear it today once in a while, Gregorian chant, had for the most part, in part fallen out of use and was lost. And so it had to be restored. They had the texts, but they didn't have CDs to listen to. You can imagine. If it's lost for more than something's lost for more than a generation in the old days, no video you can go and plug in. Okay? So they did the best they could to restore it. Okay? Yes. Is that because polyphony took its place or because nothing? Polyphonic chant took its place, but also the uh, high orchestral music took its place for the most part at that point. Not even polyphony even had fallen much out of, out of use. Was that the Baroque? Yeah. Baroque and all the, uh, um, you know, Mozart, Mozart's uh, masses and all of that that you might even buy on CD. They're very beautiful, but they had taken the place of the sacred chant of the church. Very entertaining, something to go listen to in, in concert, but not so much something to go listen to in church. Okay? Um, and so 
there was a restoration underway. Many writings about the liturgy, restoring um, a knowledge of the early church, of the fathers and their perspective upon the liturgy. And in fact, this uh, this set is just is fantastic. I can't say better. What can I say? That's awesome. Is he comments on every day of the liturgical year. Okay, and he pulls out all the church fathers and all the ancient prayers that have fallen out of use, prayers from the east, prayers from the west, prayers from Spain that were local prayers, all these beautiful things. And he collected these things, and a, a liturgical movement began. Okay, G U E R A N G E R. You can come and look at it later if you want. It costs, the set costs about two hundred dollars. It was just reprinted. It's not cheap. For water? No, for the set. For the set. <laughs> that would be crazy. Um, in the early 1900s, of course, we had the um, the great writings of Pius X. And what did Pius? What's Pius X known for about the liturgy? Early communion. What else? Music. Music. Yeah. Okay, why? Because this whole liturgical movement about restoration of chant had caught, in fi- had caught fire. And now it was growing even on Rome and, and was affecting what Rome was doing. Okay, it was highlighting the beautiful tradition of the Roman church. And the Pope said, yes, absolutely, this must be restored. Okay, um, and certain other things which that movement pushed for, yes. Uh, what was the modernism and why did Pius the Tenth condemn it? I don't remember. That's a huge topic. That's okay. a whole separate. Yeah, so let's not let's not go down that right now. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I what was modernism and why did Pius the Tenth telling us? What was modernism? No, why did Pius the Tenth restore Pius the Tenth? Oh, Gregorian chant. Oh. He restored it. He simply he simply when the Pope writes something, everybody listens, and he says, "Hey, we got it." With the restoration of Gregorian, can't say that, of course. But with with the restoration of the chant of the church, and Mozart shouldn't be our our go-to man for sacred music. We have a whole patrimony that has come down to us, and that needs to be restored. Okay. Part of this movement was a, was a realization that the faithful in the pew were attending the mass. And yet, for the most part, not realizing what was going on. For the most part. How? Why? Some of you remember the when you were a child, praying the rosary in the during the mass. Yes, it happened. And, and there's something to be maybe to be said for it as a possible way to help contemplate the mysteries. But the problem is, if you're saying the rosary during the mass and you don't have a clue what's going on up there, you're just going to church and you're doing your private prayers, and the priest is doing his part. And at a certain point, they call you up there and you go to communion. Bad idea. Okay? Missiles started to be printed. Prior to the 1930s, 1940s, the missiles were around, but they weren't real prevalent. Okay? I have, one of my hobbies in life is collecting missiles. I have a whole thing of, like, year by year, all the way down. Okay? And by about 1945, 40, eh, pretty hard to find them. Once in a while, I stumble upon somebody really old that's about to die and gives it to me. Okay, but it doesn't happen too, too often. Um, don't worry, I won't be that for many of you. And so a sense of the participation of the faithful. There's a document in Vatican II, Sacrosanctum Concilium, 
which gave the official stamp to liturgical reform in the church. Okay? And there's a few phrases in there that are very interesting. One of them is, the faithful should know their parts in Latin. They should know how to say and sing their parts. That's coming right out of the liturgical movement. Okay, It was on fire, and by the 1950s was really on fire in a lot of places. There were gatherings of children um, to learn Gregorian chant. From the first grade okay. on. Yeah. All right, some of you remember that. Okay. Um, so there was a whole movement afoot before the Second Vatican Council, which was calling for a restoration of, the, of our understanding of the liturgy and a restoration of the celebration of the liturgy. That low mass shouldn't be our norm. That we should know how to say and sing our parts. That the altar server saying the responses with the priest, that's okay at a certain point, but we also should know our responses because he's saying them for us. Okay? This whole movement is what gave rise to the document, Sacrosanctum Chilium, being written at the Second Vatican Council, to be there in the first place. Okay? And the things it says are things which are borrowed straight out of this movement. Okay. Did I hear you say that yes. the faithful should know their parts in Latin? Yeah. 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 Out of Vatican II? No, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. In Sacra Sanctum and Children, yeah. in Vatican II, it says the people should know our allies to say and sing. No. Yeah, I, I didn't know that Vatican II did anything to endorse Latin. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now, we're at the stage of Vatican II. I'm going to keep because people get fired up, but that's okay. Um, yeah. Vatican II, we have to remember, was written by bishops who were saying the traditional Mass. Okay? The Mass of Vatican II is this ancient missal. That's what they had before them, and it's what they were talking about when they were writing. They did make allowances for certain things to be it, changed or reformed or purified. Change is a bad word. Reformed or purified in the Missal. If there were excessive repetitions that were unnecessary. Was it possible to do the reading of the Gospel in the vernacular? Yeah. It's not going to destroy the people's faith. Okay? It, but the document, I highly encourage you to read it. It's not very long. You can probably sit down and read it in an hour. Okay, maybe shorter than that, uh, depending on how fast of a reader you are. It takes me about an hour. But uh, it also says nothing should be changed unless it is absolutely necessary for the good of the faithful. Nothing should be changed unless it's absolutely good, necessary for the good of the faithful. Sacro Sanctum Concilium. Already now, Concilium. 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 Thank you. Yeah. I found out that you could download these things on the internet. Absolutely. 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 All right. We have five minutes to bring us up to the introduction of the new mass. I can do it. It's right here. It's fine. Um, in 1964, following, not following the council, in the midst of the end of the council, which concluded in 64, uh, as was common with any document calling for something to take place, a group of, of men were called together to study the document and put it into practice. You remember, the Council of Trent called for liturgical reform, but it wasn't until Pius V 
pope, two popes later, that actually put that into, into place. So the council calls for it, but it can't, I mean, it, it can't do everything. So it calls for it, it opens the gates for it, and then leaves it to later men to deal with what they're saying. Okay, and a group was, was brought together called Concilium. No one wants to hiss. And it was headed by a name, an archbishop named Bugnini. Archbishop Bugnini in 1964. Five or six? 1964. In 1965, the first missile was introduced after Vatican II, including what might be understood, as many have pointed out, as accomplishing what the document in the Second Vatican Council called for. Okay, what kind of changes did it make? How many of you remember the reforms in 1965? Okay, I happen to remember them very well because I attended one of the few masses in the United States for about two years, which used the 65 missile. Why? I don't know. I, uh, it's like a long discussion, but anyways, we did. And um, the prayers at the foot of the altar are, for the most part, gotten rid of. The psalm is gotten rid of. It's truncated down to one or two verses. Boom, it's over. And the, prayer, and the priest walks up to the altar. What language was it? That's a good question. We're getting to that. The private prayers, uh, for the most part, like the Our Father, though it was allowed before, it now becomes the norm. Okay, that the Our Father and other prayers which were said by the priest alone are now said together. The communion of the priest and the faithful are brought together so that their prayers are one. Um, the, the priest uses the, the sedia or the chair on the side okay, for much of the beginning of the Mass as he does today before he goes to the altar. In the old days, he went straight to the altar and said the Mass from the altar. Okay, but now certain prayers were said from the chair. Um, during the creed, in the middle of the creed, and the word became flesh, everybody in the old days genuflected. Okay, instead of that, a bow was put in. Okay, so no longer genuflection, but a bow. Something minor, but again, the people that are critical of this would say, look, what is the difference between a bow and a genuflection? Well, a bow is reverential, but a genuflection is, in a sense, the ultimate in reverence. Right? It's body language. So, yeah, so why change it? Is it necessary for the good of the faithful? Right? So, um, the communion formula is shortened. The old communion formula, Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi Custodian Animum Tuum and Vitam Eternum. Amen. May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul to life everlasting. Amen. Every single communicant, the priest said that to and said amen for you. You simply received because he was acting in the person of Christ and in the person of the church representing you. Okay? That was changed to simply Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. They did split it though. He would, he would say, Corpus Donum Nostri Christi, and then go to the next person and say, Custodia, I man be the maternal man. In the old days, yeah, it was normal. Same in our church today, right? It's very practical, it flows. Yeah. You just go to the people, you keep saying it. That's okay, alright? Um, and the last gospel was omitted. Right, the last gospel, which was the beginning of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of you remember that. 
1967, so that was 65. In 67, a few more reforms took place, reduced genuflections. The canon, the Eucharistic prayer, which historically was said quietly, was then said out loud. Um, in 1968, three Eucharistic prayers were added. And in 1969, the new Mass was introduced. The Novus Ordo. Oh, my hand is so bad. Oh, my gosh. My dad's a doctor. Um, the Novus Ordo was introduced on the first Sunday at Advent. And it was finally published by the by the Holy Father by Rome in 1970. Um, another Eucharistic prayer was added. Concilium, the group that was in charge of, of making these reforms, of submitting them to the Holy Father, wanted to get rid of the sign of the cross at the beginning of Mass, the Confidior, okay, I confess, and the Arate Fratres, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice one sacrifice, okay? Trying to cleanse the Mass of many of the things, some have said, trying to cleanse the Mass of many of the things which are explicitly Catholic, explicitly talk about sacrifice. Okay? Why? Possibly as a gesture, yeah, it's a gesture to the Protestants, okay? To make the Mass more uh, akin to Protestant services, so that there wasn't as much of a division between the two. Yeah. I've read that the Commission also wanted to abolish the Roman canon even as an option. I do believe so, yes. And Paul VI stepped in on that. Well, what is that? He wanted to abolish the Roman canon. The, the, the canon that is canon number one today. wanted to get rid of that as an option altogether. That was the only canon that had been used up to that date. And that's what Fortescue talks about as being that one prayer in the Mass which is virtually gone unchanged all the way back to Gregory the Great. No, it was unheard of to change it. Okay, in what fact, was canon number one. Canon number one is called the Roman Canon. Eucharistic. Is that a holy It's the Eucharistic prayer. Right after the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 the Eucharistic prayer begins, okay? Um, uh, did, did you didn't mention anything about the prayer So many prayer There was, yes. I think that's right in my notes right here. Maybe not. Um, the offertory prayers were pretty much axed. Okay, the prayer that we read earlier, gotten rid of. The prefaces right before the Eucharistic prayer were there were not very many. Special ones for, for very special feast days, for the most part one for weekdays, one for Sundays. It was something dear to the faithful because it was said out loud. The people remembered it. The chant is a, is something that's quite catchy, okay, in some ways. And uh, and when and now Many new prefaces were introduced. Okay, that is an area that the current Holy Father, a point that he very much likes and wants to have introduced into the traditional mass. Maybe okay, he's written on a, a number of, of, of occasions. Uh, there was a simplification of the communion rite. New readings were introduced. A simplification of the calendar and allowance for mass facing the people. Notice this is 1970. There's no allowance for mass facing the people at Vatican II. Vatican II is not to blame. And, and, yeah. and also, I would like to point out that uh, it's an allowance. Okay? When you attend the mass with Father McAfee at noon, he faces the tabernacle as it was done in the old days. It's something proper to both liturgies. So you read, your, you read the 
the news agencies, which ought to prove you that news agencies don't know what they're talking about. They say, the old mass is done with, this, with the priest who's back-facing the people. Not true. Okay? And in fact, the priest never celebrated his back-facing the people. He always celebrated with his face facing God, leading the army of God toward the heavenly kingdom. Okay? Never as he turns back on his people, no more than you turn your back on the person of you behind you. Right? You're all on a journey towards paradise, toward the heavenly kingdom. Alright, um, here's what I have for you. That gives us a good sample, a little bit of a history. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think it would. I've heard that John Paul II and Pope Benedict were involved in Vatican II. Were they involved in Sicilian at all? Or? No. Okay. No. Uh, Ratzinger Pope Benedict was at Vatican II, okay, as a priest, as a help to one of the bishops. Um, all right, let me tell you what I have before me. Is uh, we're out of time. I have a uh, um, the development of what took place with Archbishop Lefebvre, kind of a blow by blow. Here's how it happened, and here's where we stand today. I spent a couple hours today figuring it all out. All right. If you want to stay around, what I want to do is do about ten minutes of questions. Okay, and then maybe if one of those questions fits into this, we can quickly tie into this and do like 15 minutes of here's the blow by blow thing, what happened to Lefebvre, and where they stand today, what is their situation. If some of you don't know, Archbishop Lefebvre is that was the head of a group of priests that went into schism that broke from Rome over the introduction of the new mass and other issues.